Bill Browder is Russian President Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. His story started after the breakup of the Soviet Union when Bill began investing in Russia. Throughout the years, his investments did well, and in the process, he even took down corrupt Russian businessmen by publicly exposing their frauds. But beginning in 2005, his story takes a dramatic turn. And one day he decided to win his war with the oligarchs, and, and that was the moment that Putin became the biggest oligarch. And that was the moment that our interests diverged. And when our interests diverged, they diverged very dra- radically, and that was when he and his people turned on me. Russian government officials committed a $230 million fraud and tried to pin it on Bill. His Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered the fraud, which landed him in jail. And while in that Russian jail, Sergei was tortured to death. In 2012, Bill worked with the United States to pass the Magnitsky Act, authorizing the U.S. government to sanction those who it sees as human rights offenders, freezing their assets and banning them from entering the United States. Vladimir Putin has been working to silence Bill and counteract his work ever since. These guys just value money more than anything, more than human life. They're ready to kill for for money. Since his lawyer's death, Bill has been on a campaign to expose Putin and Russian government officials for their corruption and human rights abuses. We caught up with him about his new mission in life, how his Twitter following recently got him out of jail in Spain, and how he doesn't live his life in fear. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. He calls himself a full-time troublemaker, but I think the Wall Street Journal might have it right when they call him the man who stood, stood up to Putin. Bill Browder, welcome to The Strategist. So glad to be here. And we're also joined by Bush Institute CEO Ken Hirsch, who happens to be a subject matter expert in the subject of Bill Browder because they've, they go way back. Ken, how, how long have y'all known each other? 32 years, I think, uh, as of now. So, uh, yeah, back uh, back in the days of business school, Bill and I were kind of troublemakers, um, but but capitalist tr- troublemakers. <laughs> what, what Ken fails to mention is that we were poker buddies. We played poker every Thursday night in business school, and I was a lot better than him. <laughs> well, Ken even made it into your book, right? He did, and I, and I think he has been uh, uh, riding off the vapor trails of that for a long time. That's now. right. Thank you, Chip. <laughs> I appreciate that. So... Um, we're going to skip. We're going to skip that. Other than to say that if you lined up our classmates at the uh, back in 1989 from the Stanford Business School, at one end of the of the hall, you you had the most ardent capitalists and predicted capitalist things from, and on the complete other end of the line, you had the social justice warriors. I think you and I would have been very near the first end of capitalists. And how does it feel now? And, and share with the people listening what it means to have uh, been a capitalist and now transitioned into a role of, of social justice. So, so I was indeed the arch-capitalist. I went to Russia um, uh, at the end of the Soviet era and the beginning of the Russian privatization program uh, from a very weird family background. My grandfather was the biggest communist in America, so 
Um, I said I was going to become the biggest capitalist in Russia. And that's literally the biggest communist in America. He was Earl Browder. He was the head of the American Communist Party of America in 1932 to 1945. And I ended up in Russia and I was um, uh, investing in Russia. And and we had this uh, spectacular return on our fund until every – Corruption kind of took over in a massive way. I tried to fight the corruption. The corruption fought back, and I was uh, expelled from the country. My lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was arrested. He was tortured for 358 days, and he was killed. And I then have embarked since nine years ago after his murder on a campaign for justice, which, as Ken describes, um, has put me firmly in the area of a uh, justice crusader. And um, I would argue, actually, in an interesting way that my business skills have made me a better uh, justice fighter um, than many people who have specialized in that in all their life, because um, I take the same uh, sort of uh, no-nonsense approach towards human rights advocacy as I did towards running a hedge fund. But if you were to uh, think about your conclusion after the tragic death of your lawyer, um, and the the heart of the Magnitsky Act um, is really it's a business approach. Um, you're you're attacking people who steal um, at the source of their assets. This is the crux of it. So just just to get some background out there, Sergei Magnitsky, who was killed, and I came up with this idea which was um, if I couldn't get justice in Russia and Vladimir Putin made it very clear personally that there was not going to be any justice for Sergei Magnitsky, we needed to get some justice outside of Russia. And so I said to myself, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And uh, if I had been, let's say, a human rights lawyer, I would have looked at the tools of the European Court of Human Rights or the or some the ideas of universal jurisdiction, none of which really get you any justice. And I might have just then banged my head up against the wall. But I took a different approach. And I said to myself, wait a second, why did they kill Sergei Magnitsky? They killed Sergei Magnitsky because it covered a $230 million Russian government corruption scheme. And the guys who stole that $230 million um, they don't keep that money in Russia because they're afraid of it being stolen from them. They keep it in New York and London and Geneva and Paris. And this is where my business um, psychology comes into it. I understand how these people think because they're money people and they want to keep their money safe in the West. And so I said to myself, the one way we could really disrupt the, this, uh, these criminals is to make their money unsafe. Well, how do we make their money unsafe? We get governments to freeze it and seize it. And that became the genesis of the Magnitsky Act, to freeze assets. And on top of that, to ban their visas so they can't travel and live it up at the Georges Sank Hotel in Paris or the Cala de Volpe Hotel in Sardinia, where they're all congregating. And that was the, the basis for the Magnitsky Act. I took this idea to Washington in 2010. I told the story of Sergei Magnitsky's murder Uh, to Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, uh, to Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. Generally, um, people who wouldn't agree with each other on much, but when it came to Sergei Magnitsky, they were completely aligned. And they became the authors of the Sergei Magnitsky Act. And when it went for a vote in the Senate, two years after we launched it, it passed 92 to 4 in the Senate. It passed 89% of the House of Representatives. And on December 14th, 2012, 
President Obama signed it into law, and that became the Magnitsky Act, which has now, in Putin's opinion, is probably his single largest foreign irritant. It's the thing he stated that that it's his single largest objective, foreign policy objective, to have the Magnitsky Act repealed. So you obviously described that in great detail and in a really thrilling narrative in your book, Red Notice, um, and which is just a fascinating read. Um, and I encourage everybody to spend time with it because it really sheds light in a, in a way that very few stories can. And, and it's a story that you can't make up. Um, if you sat down to make up the most uh, outrageous fiction thriller, um, it'd be very, very hard to come up with, with your story. And as somebody who's known you a long time, um, it, it would, it's even more improbable. But I want you to talk a little bit about the instruments of the state and the, the title Red Notice and the relationship with Interpol. And Interpol is an obscure agency that serves a purpose on this planet, but when it's manipulated, uh, it can serve other purposes. And, and I think that that is a story that needs to come out more. So after the Magnitsky Act was passed, Vladimir Putin really got mad. He got mad at the policy, and he got mad at the person who advocated for the policy, namely me. And so the Magnitsky Act was passed in December of 2012, and then the first attempt to go after me from Vladimir Putin came in May of 2013, where the Russian government issued the first Interpol red notice request to have me arrested. So just for for everyone's knowledge, Interpol is the international police organization. Just about every country in the world, minus North Korea and Somalia, belong to uh, Interpol. And um, Interpol basically is an organization where if a country wants to have you arrested, they uh, type it into the um, Interpol information system, and the next time you cross a border, you get arrested. That's how Interpol works. And it's not supposed to be working for dictators going after their enemies. It's supposed to be working for catching fugitives. And probably in 95% of the cases, um, that's what it is worked for. But you've got these situations like Vladimir Putin going after me, where um, there was no legitimate reason for Interpol to be involved. He abused Interpol by putting me on the system. And we applied to Interpol. And we said to Interpol, this is a politically motivated arrest warrant. Um, it violates your own rules. Interpol does have rules. Um, it violates your own rules, and you should delete it. And Interpol quickly responded, and they deleted it and said, indeed, this is an illegitimate and politically motivated arrest warrant. It should be deleted. And that should have been the end of the story. And that doesn't happen very often, right? That doesn't happen nearly often enough because it's not just Russia doing this. Russia does this a lot, by the right. way. They've, they do this hundreds of times. Turkey is out there issuing this stuff like candy. The United Arab Emirates, when a prince doesn't like somebody, he issues a red notice. Um, uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. This is something but that— But Interpol doesn't, doesn't erase them or delete them very often. Not very often, and they should be deleting them a lot more often, and there should be a total cleanup of this Interpol system. And, le and let me tell you what happened next, which is that— Russia has since gone to Interpol seven times in total to have me arrested, seven times. And the most recent was pretty recently. And so it's not like there's any punishment for them abusing the system. They just keep on coming back for more, more and more abuse, hoping that one day someone will say, oh, okay. And, and to add insult to injury, last fall, um, Russia tried to become president of Interpol. 
that they've got this like backroom thing going on where uh, the the president of Interpol is like uh, determined by all the member states. And Russia was going around handing out envelopes full of cash to like little African dictatorships to get their vote. And they thought it had they, they, they thought it, they had it all wrapped up. And we heard about it four days in advance of the vote. And we created an international firestorm. And thankfully, because of the noise that I made and the noise that, that five or six other people made, um, uh, the South Korean candidate won, not the Russian. But can you imagine a Russian as president of Interpol? Well, and this isn't just theoretical. You had a, a pretty close call within the past year. Indeed. So, um, as I said, seven times they've applied to Interpol. I was in Madrid, Spain, at the end of May last year. I was invited by the chief anti-corruption prosecutor to come and give evidence about how Russian organized crime proceeds from the Magnitsky murder came to Spain. He invited me to give evidence on May 30th. I show up on May 29th. Um, I check into a hotel. I give them my passport. And the next morning... Two hours before my meeting with the prosecutor, um, the Spanish police come to my hotel room. They arrest me. And thank God I had an opportunity to tweet out that I was being arrested. Um, And so I get arrested. My Twitter, uh, I have a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers. It all went viral. Um, All of a sudden, every journalist was calling Interpol. Hundreds of journalists were calling the Spanish police, and they realized they made a big mistake, and they let me go two hours later. Had it not been for Twitter, I might still be in jail in Spain right now fighting a Russian illegal uh, extradition request. We talk about that for a second because you, you, your story is out there on Twitter, and, and I encourage people to follow you um, because it, it's a story that continues to unfold. Twitter today uh, is manipulated. We have bot farms. Um, the Russians have mastered the use of it. Um, it obviously meddled with our election. Whether it impacted the results or not is an open question. But there's clearly, um, it, whether it would be the Brexit vote or whether it be our elections, all or the Nationalist Party, the growth of the Nationalist Parties in Europe, there's all these examples of social media being manipulated. Here, social media is your, fr- your friend. Um, give us your thoughts on this age of Twitter? Is it a net positive? Is it a net negative? You know, how should we think about uh, about how Twitter can be used or should be used and to not get us into a situation where the freedoms we enjoy are being turned against us? Well, I guess we, we could call Twitter a frenemy. <laughs> so it, 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 was, it was my friend, definitely, in getting me out of, uh, out of trouble in Spain, no question about it. And that's because a good social network where people who are, I mean, tw- Twitter in a certain way serves an amazing purpose, which is that it used to be that, that the editor of the New York Times and the editor of the Financial Times were the curators of what, what, was, you know, what was important and what wasn't. They could decide what was important and what wasn't. And by, by having Twitter now, um, everybody can, can sort of pick their own curators and fo- decide who to follow. And when it's just real people following other real people, that's a huge net positive. However, as you said, Ken, um, there's a lot of pollution on Twitter. And the pollution is very simple, which is that there are a lot of not real people. There are literally millions of accounts being set up by Russians and Iranians and all sorts of other bad actors to try to create the impression of public opinion and and so on. 
And that's where the problem comes in. This whole Twitter thing could be easily solved with one stroke of the pen by regulators, which is just to say that every person who has a Twitter account has to be a person and it has to be proven in some way. It doesn't have to be public. It can be at Twitter's headquarters that, you know, that you have to prove that you're a real person in order to have a Twitter account. If that were the case, um, then it would become a proper, real, reliable social network and you wouldn't have all this nonsense, which has a disproportionate effect. I mean, effectively, what Twitter is, is if, if you shout, some people have louder voices than others based on the, the, uh, how important they are or, or the, the quality of their message. Um, and the, some people deserve to have a loud shout. But some messages don't deserve that, but, but they create these artificial loud shouts with all these fake, fake bots uh, generating something which looks like something is popular. And, and all you have to do is get rid of that, and then Twitter would be a, a true friend and not a frenemy. So are you, are you convinced that the Russian, uh, just both the social network and um, your harassment network starts at the top? Um. In, in terms of who's going after me from yeah, Russia, from Russia, Vladimir Putin has made. He, he used to pretend he didn't know me. Um, they would they would ask, what, you know, Bill Browder was kicked out of Russia, and then he would say, I I, I, I don't know this person, but if 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 this person was kicked out, then then they must have committed crimes in our country. But more recently, and I would say four or five different occasions, um, Vladimir Putin, when he hears my name or says my name, um, you can see his forehead furrowing up, and you can see anger all over his face. <laughs> And um, uh, uh, I've really got a special place in his mind of being one of the people that he's most irritated by. And, and the sort of culmination or the, 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 the near-term climax of his anger was um, demonstrated at the Helsinki summit between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin at the press conference afterwards when one of the journalists asked about what they talked about. And he, said, he said, we talked about uh, – um, he said, we, we talked about me, uh, Putin, asking Trump um, to hand over Bill Browder um, to the Russians, along with 11 uh, U.S. officials who were part of the Bill Browder, the quote, Bill Browder criminal network. And um, so we all know that, that um, I've got a permanent place in Vladimir Putin's mind as, uh, as some, uh, some, somebody who's really gotten under his skin. And what was your reaction to that? What was in your head when you turn on the TV and you see that being mentioned? Well, my reaction was less extreme than the um, most people, the entire American public reaction for one simple reason, that it wasn't the first time it happened. So in October of the, of, of the previous year, in October of 2017, uh, Canada passed the Canadian Magnitsky Act. And after they passed the Magnitsky Act, he was equally perturbed and angered. And at a, a special summit for, that he holds for journalists and academics, um, a Canadian academic who was sort of part of his inner circle of supporters asked him a softball question about what do you think of the Canadian Magnitsky Act? And Vladimir Putin went on a rampage, a five-minute rampage about all the alleged crimes that I'd committed in Russia. And that, that was where the, the best body language of all sort of showed up. And, um, and so it, for me, it wasn't a surprise. It was more, in fact, right before the summit, I, I had prepared a tweet that I was about to send saying, I wonder if Putin is going to be talking about me at the summit. And then I kind of thought better of it. I thought that's really self-centered. I, I, I shouldn't send that tweet out. Of course not. And then there they were talking about me. So we in this country take rule of law and democracy, um, part, much of it for granted. Um, you've obviously run into a situation where, the, where, where you realize much of the world, you can't take that for granted. 
And I'm curious about your thoughts as both as a business person and now um, in your campaign to really um, share with us how you would advise us, the average person, the average business person running a business, a global business, doing global trade and whatever. How how should we react with this information that we have of your story? It's not just it's not just an interesting detective story that you might see on a, on a news clip. This is real life. This is the instruments of government, the instruments of power, the instruments of multilateral organizations. Um, help us. Well, when I was when I was a hedge fund manager and the largest um, investor in Russia, I effectively in my career was and I was very successful in that career. Um, made all of my returns and all of my money in emerging markets, and through this experience, I also then discovered. The downside of emerging markets, which is a a lack of rule of law and a lack of property rights. And for me, the downside um, was exponential and infinite infinite in that they arrested, tortured, and killed my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And from that murder and from their subsequent conduct after that murder of covering it up and of going after the people, including myself, fighting for justice – it became so disgusting that the conduct of the Russian government um, that it became clear to me that that everybody and me first and foremost didn't value enough the rule of law and didn't value enough property rights. And from a business perspective, I don't run other people's money anymore. I'm not a businessman, but I have my own investment portfolio, and I made all my money in emerging markets, and I invest only now in rule of law countries where where a contract can be enforced where police operate etc and i think that that as a uh, as anybody really um we we cannot uh overestimate the value of the rule of law and anytime anyone comes and tries to attack the rule of law we have to vigorously defend it and to the extent that people are doing that in america right now um one that that's the biggest outrage and that needs to be firmly defeated and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work we do at the Bush Institute um, around freedom and democracy and making sure that people here at home understand uh, what a special place this is and how we have to protect our democracy and the freedoms that come with it. Um, I want to take you back to the early 90s when when I think you were advising me on buying some of these Russian stocks after I was being critical of of, of this place, a part of the world where I had no knowledge but really didn't want to do business. And I remember you saying, but Ken, you can make a lot of money when these countries go from god-awful to just crappy. Um, and uh, and he said you can make five times your money, and it's still bad. And and uh, I never forgot that. And I think I actually did invest with you. Um, and it was god awful, then crappy, then god awful again. Um, but so now, so now you clearly see that you know bad is bad. Well, so 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 there there as from an investment standpoint. Um, uh, uh, and, and and I remember that conversation very vividly, and and and, um, and, and I, it was actually might not have been words like no, it was sort of that. It was horrible to bad. It was a horrible to bad trade. I call it the Nigeria to Brazil trade, and 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 the answer is that that's what it was for a time. It was it went from horrible um, to very bad to bad, and and on that trajectory, um, everyone made a lot of money. The problem was it went from bad, as you said. Back to horrible, and you don't make money on that. You make you lose a lot of money, and you lose a lot of other stuff on that trajectory. And that is what happened um, as Russia, uh, as Vladimir Putin, sort of firmly became the biggest oligarch in Russia. Why do you think he targeted you? 
Well, I um, I don't think that he targeted me first off. I think that um, uh, people underneath him targeted me. And I did something which is unforgivable, which is I fought back and I started to expose all their corruption. And Vladimir Putin... Did they target you, you think, just because you were a successful rich guy in, in their system and they couldn't understand it? Well, no. They, I mean, it was very specific why they targeted me. Um, what, what I was doing when I was investing was I, I became a shareholder activist. And what that meant was to uh, research how they did stealing in these Russian companies and then expose that research through the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. And um, and interestingly, for, for some period of time, uh, I've never met Putin, but for some period of time, he actually liked that because I was going after his enemies. The, the, the oligarchs who I was going after were stealing money from me at the same time as they were stealing power from him when he first became president. And so he was no fan of the oligarchs. And early on, you were you were talking favorably about Putin. I was. So I, w- I would expose the oligarchs. He would step in and do something. And I, th- and, and I would sort of put my hands together and say, OK, this is pretty good. You know, um, I can uh, I was punching way above my weight. I was just a, sort of a, a no, nobody foreign investor. And all of a sudden I would uh, get, you know, government officials fired. I would get uh, investigations started. I would get um, presidential decrees issued through my work. And so I thought that was very powerful. And Putin was very supportive of it. But he wasn't supporting it because he wanted to make Russia a better place, he was supporting it because I was going after his enemies. And one day he decided to win his war with the oligarchs. And the way he went about doing that was to arrest the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Michael Hordakovsky, the owner of Yukos. He arrested him, he put him on trial, and he allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial, sitting in a cage. And that and and Putin's very clever about these symbol, these symbolic actions, and by 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 uh, um, creating this television image of the richest guy sitting in a cage, all the other oligarchs were just like just horrified, like they they didn't want to be in that cage, and so they went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in that cage? And Putin said, fifty percent, and and that was the moment that Putin became the biggest oligarch. And that was the moment that our interests diverged. And when our interests diverged, they diverged very radically. And that was when he and his people turned on me and they um, expelled me from the country and then did this horrible crime, which led to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. And um, businesses doing business in Russia, um, you say get out? Russia is a place where you not only risk losing your money— You risk having your people arrested, tortured, and killed. And my story is not unique. The only thing unique about my story is that I've been out there telling it. Right. In fact, some of the journalists who were involved in your case or followed your stories are no longer alive. People who are defending or around the Magnitsky case are no longer alive. There are many people who have been killed, threatened, exiled, arrested, etc., involved in my story and involved in other stories. And and uh, I was just, before I came to Dallas, I was in Houston giving a speech, and, and four or five people came up to me. For the, the, everyone in Houston seems to be in the oil business. And they all came up to me and said, oh, I, we had this deal in Russia. You can't imagine. Now we're suing. And it's like, oh, my God, we just barely got out our life, etc., Everybody has a, a, a there's, there's no happy stories coming out of business in Russia. So speaking of stories, when are we going to see this story on the big screen? 
Well, it's um, I've been trying for a while to find the right combination of... Now, is Brad Pitt going to play you? I heard a rumor. <laughs> well, um, uh, Brad Pitt's definitely not good-looking enough. <laughs> um, uh, you will see this story on the big screen. We're working on a miniseries, but it's um, one thing I've discovered is that um, I've worked in Russia. I've worked in on Wall Street. I've worked in Washington. Uh, and um, I've never never encountered a place where so many people lie so easily as they do in Hollywood. So um, I, I've got a bit of work to do to get something nailed down there. So how do you think that we should be dealing with Russia? Like, what's the best way moving forward to, because they're a part of this world, whether we, whether we want to distance ourselves or work arm in arm with them, they're a part of this world. What, what, what do you think is the best way to work with them? Well, what we've learned is that Vladimir Putin is effectively a rogue operator. He's sending out assassins to use high-grade chemical weapons to poison people in Salisbury. Um, These people shot down a passenger plane, killed 298 people over Ukraine. They cheat in the Olympics. They meddle in elections. They're bombing innocent uh, civilians in Syria. This is a rogue regime. This is not a country that you deal with um, as as a responsible member of the international community. And, and the trouble is, people say, well, you know, it's a country, it's a sovereign state, um, that people kind of look like us, and therefore we should try to engage with them and convince them it's not the right tactic to be um, uh, doing all this bad stuff. And every time someone comes to Vladimir Putin with that approach, he just laughs, and it's effectively bought him time. The only way to deal with Russia is the way we dealt with, with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which is a containment strategy. And uh, yes, we're no longer containing them because of ideology. We're containing them because there's a criminal state. And the containment has to be very clear that if they cross over certain thresholds and barriers, there'll be consequences. And Vladimir Putin can't handle consequences because he's, he's really got a small country. He, his military budget's 90% less than the United States, and 80% of his military budget is stolen through corruption, so it's like 2% of the U.S. military budget. He couldn't handle any type of military confrontation um, other than a nuclear war, which, which is um, to, actually not even totally out of the question because what a crazy guy he is. Um, and so uh, he needs to be shown where the boundaries are. And the boundaries have to be very explicit. The boundaries, military boundaries have to be all around NATO states. There should be extreme um, financial boundaries where any money coming out of Russia needs to be vetted as if it's laundered money and assuming it's laundered unless you can prove otherwise. There needs to be technology boundaries that that um, uh, need to be affected so that Twitter and Facebook and all these things can't be used by the Russians. Um, and if those boundaries are properly maintained, then um, Putin's latitude for troublemaking will be dr- dramatically reduced. Does he have the popula- his own population on his side? Well, you know, I've, he, I've he, seen he, recent polls, polling numbers, and usually the polls that come out of Russia are so rigged, and it's always showing him with an 80% approval rating. And there's been reports lately about really popular opinion turning against him, which is really stunning if that's uh, it's even true. remotely it, true. It, it's absolutely true. And uh, the, most, the most telling poll I saw was not about him, but about the intentions of uh, young people in Russia. There was a poll done last week which said um, that 44% of 18 to 27-year-olds want to emigrate from Russia. 44%. I mean, that's just remarkable. I mean, that says everything. That says everything. You know, you like Putin, not like Putin. Nobody wants to be there. Why, why would you want to be in a criminal state where if you start a business, it gets taken away from you? And the only way to become successful and wealthy is to become a criminal. Why would anyone want to be there? Right. Well, let's broaden the lens a little bit. 
because you've obviously helped dissidents all over the world. Um, and there are businesses uh, and business people um, conducting their lives. How should human rights and um, and social issues, I'll call it, uh, how should, if you're running a business and you have customers and suppliers and transporters of um you know, of all over the world, how should you factor in human rights into your business value chain? Well, um, you know, as a business person, and I was a business person, you know, your job is not to think about human rights. Your job is to think about um, maximizing profits. That's not, it's not part of the, your mandate. However, and I'm, I'm proud to be the source of this, um, I can create a really unprofitable situation, and I have, for business people who don't think about human rights. And let me give you an example. So the Magnitsky Act um, imposes U.S. federal OFAC sanctions on people who commit human rights abuses. And various other um, sanctions about Russia have basically been modeled as copies of the Magnitsky Act. And so there was an example recently where seven Uh, Russian oligarchs were sanctioned in April of 2018 for hacking and interfering in the U.S. election or providing support to the Putin regime that did that. And and one of the oligarchs had a billion dollars on account at Credit Suisse in Zurich. And so um, that created a problem for Credit Suisse. Because the oligarch then said, hey, um, can you do you mind transferring my billion over to Gazprom Bank so that I can keep it there? And Credit Suisse said, wait a second, if we do that, then we'll be in violation of U.S. sanctions. And if we're in violation of U.S. sanctions, then the U.S. Treasury could fine us three times the amount of money that we've moved, $3 billion. So on one hand, they could be fined $3 billion for moving the money. On the other hand, this is Switzerland. It's not under sanctions. And, and by the way, the upside for them is $150. That's what they get paid for a wire transfer. So the upside is $150. Downside is $3 billion. And, and, Bad but trade. But, but I'm it, no risk-reward expert. But. But, but it gets worse than that because the oligarch has his money. And so he can then say, listen, I was about to invest this in a project that was going to triple myself. And therefore, um, the, the courts have to award him that, those damages. And so, so if you're the president of Credit Suisse and, you, and, and you're in this – damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. What's your natural reaction going to be? You're going to go around to all of your account officers and say, I want to clear out everybody who might ever have any possibility of being involved in human rights abuse because I don't want this as an unprofitable, damaging situation. And that's the kind of thing that can be done. And that's what a profit-maximizing corporate leader has to pay attention to. And I feel very proud to have created a situation where I'm forcing these guys to think about human rights even if they don't want to. Right. And and that's also – it's also evidence of how interconnected – the world is just through the money transfer business um, and how what a pivotal role the United States plays in the U.S. banking system and the U.S. capital markets. So even if you do think you're way offshore, um, chances are you're really not. Well, no, every bank in the world, if no, no bank in the world wants to be cut off from the U.S. banking system. And that's what happens, by the in way. Fact, in fact, the SWIFT system, which is the automatic money transfer system, when, when we threatened to uh, remove Russia from the SWIFT system, Putin said, I will de- I will treat that as tantamount to an act of war. And it was all it was doing was taking Russia off the money exchange system to show you how well, serious and, it is. And as, as Gary Kasparov, the famous chess champion who's a Putin dissident, has said, it's uh, these days um, we're going to be fighting them within the banks, not fighting them with tanks. Is it as simple as the association between 
power and money to Putin. Like you mentioned, we're talking about all these things that take money out of his hands. What is the association with, is that just a pure one-to-one money equals power in Russia? Um, it's it's a little more basic than that, which is that um, these guys just value money more than anything, more than human life. They're ready to kill for, for money without uh, kill lots of people for money. And so if money is the most valuable thing to them, then you want to go after the thing that they covet the most, which is that money. There's no ideology here whatsoever. Putin is not an, an idealist. He, he has no ideology. He, you know, when, when he talks about the Soviet Union, that's just pure scripting stuff because that's, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that sounds good on TV. He just cares about money and he wants power so he can have money. And he's a very mundane person. You know, I, I was asked oftentimes, what, what, uh, is he like Hitler or Stalin? And the answer is no, he's, he's like Pablo Escobar. Without a miniseries, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 with nuclear weapons. Right. Well, as we that takes us back full circle though to, to Bill Browder, not the hedge fund manager, but the human rights activist. And do you? How well do you sleep at night? Do you? Are you scared of of what Russia is going to do to you, or do you? Are you at peace? I sleep like a baby. I wake up every two hours crying. <laughs> now, now, the, the, the answer is seriously that that I I am I, I do not live in fear. Um, because if you live in fear, you already have given them ninety percent, ninety-five percent of what they want. I'm standing with my head held high, um, and I'm going right back at them because that's what I—that's what Sergei Magnitsky deserves, um, having taken much greater risks than I'll ever take. And and they may do something horrible to me at, at some point. I hope not, um, but I'm not going to stop doing what, what, what I'm doing because uh, Sergei Magnitsky deserves justice. And what's great too is when we look—I looked at—I was looking at your Twitter feed earlier, and it's become about a lot more than just Sergei Magnitsky to you. You're, you're standing up for all, all sorts of different people who are in some similar positions now. Well, you know, I've seen now where the system doesn't work. You know, there, there is Interpol. There, there is a, a Bahraini um, football player, soccer player, um, who fled to Australia, was granted asylum by the Australian government, and asylum, political asylum, and um, the Bahrainis put him on the Interpol list, and you're not even allowed to, to um, Interpol's not even allowed to put uh, political refugees on their list. And he got arrested on his honeymoon in Thailand. He's sitting in a Thai jail, and the Thais are talking about handing him over back to Bahrain to be tortured in a Bahraini prison. That's just outrageous. And, and I, I mean, uh, you know, how can I not intervene on his behalf when it's so obvious, so clear, and, and, and it's got... Uh, and it touches on all the same issues I've had to deal with. If I can, if I can help people um, who have had to deal, who maybe don't have the experience that I have dealing with these issues, I should. And 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 I get great satisfaction if I can, if I can solve pr- problems of these people. So Ken, when you hear that passion in his voice, what do you think? Do you think about the uh, the kid at Stanford MBA school? Well, he was that passionate, which is why he could never bluff at a poker game. Um, the, uh, but, but I do remember being with you um, later in the day in 2009 when you had received the call in the middle of the night from Sergei Magnitsky's mom saying that he had died. And you said to me, I now know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And, um, and you, it changed you. So, so my, my poker buddy, Bill Browder became social activist Bill Browder. So he's a, you, you've added a dimension to yourself um, and, uh, that, uh, that is absolutely amazing and admirable. And we're excited at the, at the Bush Center to be able to, to really share this story um, and, uh, and to give it the kind of platform that it needs. Um, and, and, and to see it unfold and still unfolding, um, and hopefully it unfolds uh, to the positive. I know you're working on a second book and, and the miniseries, and, and we hope that this story uh, continues to be told because it's one that needs to be told. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Well, to learn more about Bill and his story, you can pick up the number one New York Times bestseller, Red Notice, at any major bookstore. And at the Bush Institute, we're really committed to extending freedom and democracy. So you can learn more about our work at bushcenter.org slash human freedom. Bill, thank you so much for all the time. Great to be here. Ken, thank you as well. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.